Hey, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today, we're going to be talking about the iconic music retailer, Manny's Music. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Who else could we be talking about when we talk about giant music retailers other than the institution that was Manny's Music? Absolutely. And today we get that chance. Hooray. How thrilled are you, Mike? I am so excited. Well, you know me. I like a good music store. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Having grown up in one. <laughs> and Manny's is just one of those stores that you always hear about. You hear the famous stories. It's kind of infamous for being that place where all the celebrities went. And I'm just excited to talk about it today. Absolutely. And thanks to some interviews from the NAM Oral History Program, we are going to be discussing its history and some of the people who work there and, of course, its relevance in pop culture as well as the music uh, products industry. Yeah, so just before we kind of get started with some of our content here, we thought we'd go through a quick background with just some fast facts for you guys. And since I don't know them, I will stump our resident music historian so what were you thinking should we start with manny um okay manny goldrich was born in 1905 and uh, passed away in 1968 and along the way in 1935 he started a small music shop in uh, new york city on 48th street that uh, became very iconic for lots of reasons that we'll be hearing about in the next uh, hour or so and really, I think uh, it was the people, as we're going to hear, the people who brought the products to the celebrities and to the um, their customers, both in New York. And because it was New York, it was quite a hub for all traveling musicians coming in and out of the area from England and so on. So oftentimes we heard that the first time somebody from England got to play a Fender guitar, it was at Manny's. Those kind of stories have come to us over the years. So uh, it was really a hub for lots of different reasons. And speaking of the people, uh, Manny had a son named Henry, and we were so fortunate to have interviewed Henry in uh, 2003. And his two sons, uh, Ian and Judd, were both interviewed in 2017. So we are really going to be basing our uh, podcast today on on mostly the three of them and their contributions to the oral history program by regaling us with the story of that store and the founder, Manny. How's that for an intro? That was beautiful. I feel like I know so much now. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I did in one breath, too. <sighs> <laughs> well, I don't think uh, Mike and I can contribute much after that. We can't. It's hard act to follow. Yeah. So maybe we should just roll the first clip. So we're going to be hearing from Ian Goldrich first, and he's going to be talking about Manny's history. Is there anything else we want to say about Ian before we get started? Nope. Looking forward to it. All right. Here he is. Can you tell us a little bit about how your family came to the industry and how that developed? 
Well, I think that you probably heard it from my father when he did his, the oral history, but my grandfather, Manny, was a musician um, who started working for Con Selmer in New York, was a salesperson for, I don't think it was Con Selmer, it was Con at the time. And um, uh, he was a salesperson in New York, and the, the legend is, is that he started making more money than whoever the president of the company was at the time, so they fired him. And he said, well, I can do this on my own, start, established a little shop on 48th Street in uh, Midtown and became sort of the mecca of the music industry for New York. It wasn't just retailers, there were rehearsal studios there, there were clubs, there were uh, lessons, um, a lot of people on 48th Street uh, and it became known as Music Row. So that store sort of centered a lot of the Music Row at the time in the 30s and 40s. It really became a hub. Which really was. And that was a hub until the end of the recording business in, the, in New York. The end of the recording business was the early 90s. And, you know, our industry pushed towards that. Uh, at the time, I was going to an AES show and a NAM show, the 80s. And now the AES show is sort of passe um, because the, the ADAC came along and, and kind of revolutionized everything. So the recording studio business went away. And all the guys that would have dates every single day, you know, three, four recording dates a day, you know, um, and they'd say, well, let's meet at Manny's for lunch between gigs. Uh, so yeah, Manny's was, and 48th Street was really known as a hub for, for that whole thing, whether it was Broadway, recording guys, writers, um, um, what's the name of the, the Brill Building was right around the corner, so that was filled with musicians and writers, and it was, you know, a quarter of a block away. Yeah, it was a fun street. It was a fun street. It all changed in the 90s as far as the gatherings went. Hmm. You know, I always had the impression, although I don't really know this for sure, that uh, one of the reasons Manny's became so important, uh, certainly in rock history and in the music industry, is because uh, uh, folks in England would come to New York and that would be the place to go and sometimes and often the only time they could get some instruments that they could sure. get in Europe is that Oh absolutely. Yeah, I mean it you know the first the first stop was typically 48th Street. You know, they get off the plane and they'd hit you know they get into their limos if they had them and they come to 48th Street. I mean the, the, I've met a lot of people, a lot of that uh, classic rock a lot of the classic rock people, but I wasn't there for the really great times in the 60s when my old man would tell me, you know, that uh, George and, and, uh, and Paul would be in the store and John would walk in and um, Paul, Paul Simon would come in and the guys would sit around and they'd jam, you know, in the back of the store. And people would watch, nobody bothered them, you know, but they'd come in. And the part about the instruments is absolutely true. I mean, there was, um, there was U.S. manufacturers, Gibson and Fender, Rickenbacker and Gretsch guitars, that's what people wanted as far as the instruments went. And there was really no distribution in, in Europe for that stuff. I mean, we were the distributors. We sent hundreds and hundreds of guitars to, to England and Germany um, at that time, all not good, you know? <laughs> I mean, the manufacturers didn't like it, but quite honestly, they, they couldn't, they, they never established a really uh, great supply uh, chain at that time. So yeah, we sent a lot of instruments over there. <laughs> I guess I can say it now. It's not a big deal. It's 40 years later. <laughs> I won't tell anybody. Yeah, that's all right. 
And tell me a little bit about how the street changed. I mean, going back to the early days with your grandfather and so on. Um, how did that it, it changed. Well, you know what? Like I said, there was a lot of different kinds of businesses there, and they were all there. Um, uh, and that continued for through the seventies. You know, the, through the seventies, the rehearsal studios didn't didn't stay, but the retailers stayed. And at one point in the seventies, there must have been fifteen stores on the block. Um, really good stores too. I mean, there were a couple of, and everybody kind of had their little niche as well. Uh, we're at Baltimore. Rod, Rod, Rod was there, and uh, we buy guitars for his vintage, and Silver in Orland, and uh, and um, 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 Sam Ash came along. We, we the competition started, I guess, with when Sam Ash hit the street. Everybody kind of had their niche. Manny sold everything, but we didn't. We weren't good at recorders. We weren't good at a lot of things. We never sold pianos. So everybody had their own thing. We, we sold vintage instruments, but we buy really own that market. So that lasted through the 70s, and then in the 80s, it started going away a little bit. And then um, uh, the 90s, uh, Manny's had different problems. Everybody had Terminal Music went away, We Buy went away, Silver and Orland went away, and slowly it started shrinking. You know, now, if you walk down the street, there's nothing there. Yeah, I was there the other day. I parked across the street, and there's all the all the shops are shuttered. Is there not even the Manny sign or the clock or any of that? The clock sign is there. Uh, there was a facade, so sign on the facade, and there was this very well-known piece of marble in the front that said Manny's on it. This facade sign and the piece of marble was uh, taken off by well, we took, had it taken off, and that's going Rock and Roll Hall of Fame paid for that. So that's in storage right now in New Jersey, waiting for them to set up a place. And they wanted to take that vertical sign, that big Manny sign with the clock, but the hall is a glass pyramid, and they really couldn't figure it out. So the buildings are coming down shortly, and we're working on finding a home for that sign. There's been in, Fred Gretsch has a, a, um, has a museum in uh, Savannah. So he's expressed interest in it, but it's expensive. You know, you got to deal with New York and closing the street and putting up big cranes. It's a $30,000 operation to take it down. Yeah. So we'll see what happens to it. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the streets were pretty desolate, though. It's pretty depressing. I bet it is. And now everybody's kind of spread out. Guitar Center came into town. They've got two shops, 14th and 44th. Sam Ash is on 34th. Rudy's is downtown in the village. There are a couple of smaller shops around, guitar shops, uh, horn shops, but it's nothing like it was on 48th Street where there was really one place where all the musicians could go to, you know, and the competition was good and it brought more people, you know, it doesn't happen like that. Tell me a little bit about Manny. Did he live long enough for you to know him? I was, I was 10 when he died, so I sort of knew him. Um, but I knew him as a grandfather, and I was his first grandson, so I was a prize child. He was, I, had, I have two older uh, female cousins who, um, you know, when I came along, it was a miracle, I guess. So I got, I, I only knew him as a really, really, really great grandfather. Uh, my understanding was is he was a really, really, really tough boss. Um, he was great to musicians, though. I mean, he established... Uh, he established himself as a as a place to go for a lot of the black musicians of the time. He he gave them credit when nobody else would. 
and that goes back. That went back to the to the early, the early days. The store opened in in thirty five, and he was giving credit out to the black musicians. You know, as early as when he opened. You know, take the horn and give me five dollars a week kind of deal. And I, I have a I have a book, or maybe my brother has it, where some of those things are notated. And all the famous musicians of the time, you know, Sonny Rollins, all everybody was in the book, you know. So that's uh, that's. I, but I, I as a, from a, on a personal level, I don't really remember too much. Never saw him at work. So once again, that was Ian Goldrich. And next up, we're going to hear from his brother, uh, Judd Goldrich. You know, I started when I was tremendously young. My father, you know, we, you know, my brother and I both, uh, you know, were crawling on boxes when we were young. I mean, uh, you know, we started off uh, in the store before we could work. You know, we were there, you know, hanging around. But then when we were old enough to work, we started in the stock department um, and worked our way up to sales. And then eventually, after college, running the store. Um, the store, the store was surrounded by other great stores. At that time, I think there were 30 music stores on the block. And it was just a sight to be seen. And competitive, but different niches. Each store, you know, there's an accordion store. And there, you know, Sam Ash, of course, was a powerhouse. And uh, it drew a lot of people to the street. And of course, we had family members there. We had a, 17 family members there. One store at one time, I think. And as good as that sounds, it was also some of the the challenges that go along with working in a family and business, you know? Did you get to know Manny? You know, I, I think he passed away when I was uh, nine, so not not tremendously well. I have memories, but not like, uh, he, you know, there were any teachable moments or anything. My father was really thrust into the position because, it, you know, it was an accident that the way he passed and uh, unexpected. And right before the store opened, when the store moved, the store was in Rockefeller Center. And uh, it was right around where the tree is. And there were a bunch of stores there that were holding out uh, that wouldn't sell to Rockefeller. And then my grandfather got a great deal along with these other five, four or five shops. And the deal was to build a store somewhere else in the city. And they built the store that be, was on, we were the first store on 48th Street between 6th and 7th, Music Row. And the, the shame of it all was my, my grandfather never got to see the, the grand opening. He passed away the year before, which was a shame. And all five, um, well, I think one was a restaurant, a hat maker, none of the people who, who, uh, who took the deal from Rockefeller lived to see the building be built. And that was everybody's deal, which was a shame. Yeah, that is a shame. Yeah. Where was it? Where was it before 48th Street? Well, it was on 48th Street, but up the street in, in Rockefeller Center. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So it was right where the tree is right now. Yeah. Do you know if the the Manny sign and the clock came with it, or was that made for that new building? I'm I'm pretty sure it was made for the new building because this other store was it was because I have pictures of the old store, the clock and the sign the the sign with the clock the uh, uh, horizontal um, sign uh, was built for the building. It's actually three stories high, so it was a challenge and. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has taken the flat sign, the vertical sign, and the Terezo marble that said Manny's when you walked in and building an exhibit um, in Cleveland. Uh, but they were all put in, in the new store. And, it, and the new store was pretty amazing because it had chandeliers in it. It was pretty, it was, it was crazy. Manny's music was just, you know, the original Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's what we call it now because some of the stuff that was on the building is actually 
going out to, uh, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they're gonna put an exhibit up because, you know, legitimately everybody used to shop there. There were some stories that I could tell, uh, some fabulous, fabulous stories. I mean, one of the best was, uh, was when um, David Bowie and Mick Jagger were doing um, Dancing in the Streets. They were recording it on Right Track, which is, was right on 48th Street on Music Row. And it was Thanksgiving, the Friday of Thanksgiving, our busiest day, and that was when Black Friday was Black Friday insanity. And I remember being up in the mezzanine in the store, and all of a sudden, you know, this store was jamming, and it never, ever, ever, anything's ever happened like this. Completely stopped. Mick Jagger and David Bowie walk in the store to shop, and they see my father, Henry, and uh, big hug, but the store legitimately froze for a minute, and it was two of the most powerful guys in the industry, so that was kind of cool. But it was the Beatles, it was Hendrix, it was so many of the great performers of the day. It was a great store. Well, like going way back, I mean, when Manny was there, I mean, mm -hmm. all the big band sure. guys, right? I mean, that Ella was Fitzgerald, you know, it's all, all, all of them, you know, Duke, it was, you know, my grandfather used to have a golf tournament that, you know, Earl Garner used to, you know, used to play, Sammy Davis Jr. used to play at the golf tournament in Queens at the Engineers Golf Course in Queens. Uh, right around the corner from here. So yeah, it, it's got a pretty tremendous legacy. So perfect as we're sort of building the history here from uh, Ian and Judd's interviews of Manny's music. They're basically uh, the third generation talking about the history and their grandfather. Let's move over to uh, their father, Henry Goldridge, who is um, Manny's son. Our first location from 1935 until 1958 or 59, was at 120 West 48th Street. And then Rockefeller came in and they wanted to rip it down and put up McGraw Hill. And my father wouldn't sell, and he wouldn't sell, and he wouldn't sell. Finally, they made him a deal he couldn't refuse. And they built us a brand new building down the road at 156 West 48th Street, halfway down to 48th Street, but still on 48th Street. And um, we moved in there in 1959 and we expanded it, changed it all around 20 times. But it's been there ever since. So that was Henry, and they all those interview clips you just heard were all reflecting on the history of Manny. So if you were unfamiliar with the store there in New York City, now you're a subject matter expert. <laughs> <laughs> That's our goal. That should be our goal. Right? I like it. I feel like we do that every two weeks anyways. I think we should. Nice. You know. And we thought, what you can't talk mayonnaise without talking celebrities. You just, you just can't. Well, they, that's what they were really known for, right? Was the people that would come in the door. Absolutely. And that was part of the excitement when you would go there, just kind of as a customer or just to look at the gear that they had that maybe someone famous was there, someone that you heard on the radio was buying a new guitar or something crazy like that. And as we're about to hear, the story of how Manny first had the idea of putting celebrity pictures up on the wall started in the big band era remember it started in 1935 so that was the height of the swing era in the united states the Benny goodmans and the tommy dorseys and so manning was smart enough to say hey if you shop here do you mind if i put your picture up and oftentimes they would sign a uh, a glossy and uh, he'd frame it and by the time the 50s and 60s roll around it was basically a who's who of uh popular music uh not only in the united states but around the world and what's really cool about that is there is now a book you can buy and the gold has put it out and it's called the wall of fame new york city's legendary manny's music so it's a 
pretty substantial book just with some information in there but uh accompanying that is a lot of really great images both of gear and memorabilia but also of those signed glossy photos as I'm flipping through it, which is why I'm distracted. I mean, like everybody, <laughs> Buddy Holly to the Who, just an amazing uh, assortment of uh, stories and pictures. Yeah, so jump online or go to your book retailer, nearest book retailer, and look look it up because it's pretty neat. Uh, so here is Ian and Judd talking about pictures on the wall at Manny's. Was it his idea to put those pictures up on the yes. wall? Yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh... <laughs> Well, there were like 4,000 pictures on the wall, and all of them signed. Um, and I, 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 he started it early, because the big band stuff is all there. Uh, we moved from, from a, a little shop uh, closer to 6th Avenue on 48th Street to the shop where it just closed. Um, and all of the old big band pictures were way up top you know so once again we moved my grandfather died before he, we moved into the building we moved in 69 and he died in 69 so he never saw the building but he was part of the uh, he was part of the architect part and and all the big band pictures were up top so and there were a lot of them so he must have started early you know and it became it became fairly well known it was um, I think guitar player Rolling Stone or some big ma- big magazine wrote an article that said you know um, you want to get your picture on, on the, what was the what was the tagline? Um, it's not the Bob Dylan song. Picture on the wall of Manny's or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. So I remember we, we interviewed Brian Setzer and he says, you know, you make it when your picture is in Manny's. Yeah. You know, yeah, no, that was really the concept, really, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah, and my father would get the pictures, and depending on whether he liked you or not, was where you where your place on the wall was. No, seriously, he said, oh, you know what, he's not such a put him over there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, we actually, uh, we got Bill Clinton's, because Bill Clinton, when he, you know, when he became president, was a musician, first, maybe not the first musician president. So uh, we got a picture of him signed, and uh, we put him in a pretty good spot, you know? So, what happened to those pictures? Uh, Sam Ash owns them, oh. and they're a lot of them are crated up. Some I think were sold, um, but they're in boxes out in Hicksville. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I guess they'd like to monetize it if possible, but right now the Manny's name is not in use. I'm sure one day they may decide to do it. You know, market's tough. It's it's not an easy thing to 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 run two brands. You know, it's hard enough to get your brand out there instead of having two brands at the same time. So it might get used again. Not by me. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. Well, you know, in my position, I hear about this store all the time, particularly with musicians who thought as soon as their picture was on the wall, they knew they made it. Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the pictures? Yeah, it was pretty impressive uh, collection of pictures and the musicians, funny enough, some would come in with their picture, you know, it was kind of interesting that they would have their picture on it, but you know, it was a great tradition that was solicited by my grandfather to start. The old store had pictures wrapping around it and the new store, of course, I mean, we, we don't have the number of how many pictures, but 
from the Beatles to Frank Zappa to the Stones to a great one that said uh, from Bob Dylan said keep one eye closed at all costs or and lots of them you know with the love of my father you know because he had such a fabulous relationship with and he touched so many musicians it was the greatest part of the business you know he was Henry was legitimately a rock star to the rock stars because he really took great care of them. Cool, that was uh, Judd Goldridge, and how cool is it to hear these stories? I just love it. I was so lucky to have had the chance to go to Manny's before they closed, and just being in there, I totally get that sort of uh, historic sense, looking up on the wall. There was a great interview that we did with Brian Setzer talking about looking up at Manny's and, and seeing uh, the uh, signed picture of Buddy Holly and how cool that was to him and inspirational it was to him as a young kid. Uh, which reminds me, there are several celebrities that we've interviewed over the years who have talked about Manny, several of which we have web clips up on our site. Um, Bill Pittman, Robbie Robertson, John Schofield, and Brian Setzer, as I mentioned. So uh, take a look and, and uh, listen at some of those interviews as well. How can they approach getting to the Manny's tag on our site? Oh, that's a very good question. You can head over to www.nam.org library and click on advanced search. And then we have a feature right there where you can search for all of our different tags, including Manny's music. Well said, Mike. Thank you. That's awesome. And to possibly get you guys off track here for just a second, do you think pictures on the wall that they did at Manny's, you know how you see in movies and TVs how dry cleaners do that? Do you think dry cleaners <laughs> ripped off Manny's music? You I mean, if Manny was doing it in like the 40s and the 50s. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. What came first, Manny's or the dry cleaners? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, like maybe he was sitting in a dry cleaner one day and he's like, oh. That's, that's a good idea. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Or maybe... The other way around. <laughs> you know what I think? I think some, you know, um, musician came in and said, you know, you can hang my picture up if I can get that read for free. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, okay. All right, so kind of getting back to celebrities here, we're going to hear from Henry Goldrich talking about two specific examples working with some pretty big names in music. Uh, so I think I'll just let him tell you who they are. Jimmy... <laughs> He was, when he first came into the store, he was working for a guy named Curtis Knight. I got my memory for an old man. <laughs> Curtis Knight had a rhythm and blues thing, and we used to work the street, 45th Street. And Jimmy played with him. And Jimmy came in and bought a guitar for me. He didn't have all the money. He owed me about $180. And I charged him. I mean, I, he was a, a really straight ahead, nice guy in those days. I knew Curtis. They okayed the charge. And he went to England. A year goes by, comes into the store, pays me. Thank me very much for trusting him. And he became probably my best customer that I ever had. He used to come in, buy five, six guitars, four amplifiers, any new toy that was on the market. Loved them all. In fact, the picture, I have pictures of him. Oh, you've you never been to my other store. No. We have some like two or 3,000 autographed pictures on the walls from everybody there is. Everybody, except Elvis, he would never give a picture. From President Clinton, a rotten saxophone player. Um, <laughs> to um, movie stars, every movie star. Shirley MacLaine, mm. um, Bruce Willis is always in the store. It was, it, it was a lot of fun. So we started collecting the pictures too. I'm digressing. So back to Jimmy. So Jimmy used to come in the store and then he became very famous. So he, he, and he started to use some drugs. So he was starting to slide a little bit. So when he came in, 
We used to keep the store open after six o'clock for him. And he was a very gentle person. Always polite. In fact, my father who passed away in 69, uh, 68, I'm sorry, my mother was still working in the store. She used to work the cashier. He once went there and gave her a $10 tip. He knew she was my mother, but that's the kind of guy he was. He was very generous. He, anything that was different, I used to, he, lo he loved the way that I fixed his guitars. He played a right-handed guitar, strung left-handed. And we used to wire up the pickups in this, I don't know, we used to take, take one wire and change one wire. So it became a little bit hotter, I guess. And he loved that. He, he, he bought more guitars for me. In fact, until I retired, I used to get one phone call a week um, saying, did you sell Jimmy this guitar? I said, yeah. He says, can you put it in writing? I said, no. I mean, everybody wanted the proof that was Jimmy's guitar. In fact, Eric Barrett, who was Jimmy's manager, called me at home recently, wanted to know about some guitar we sold him. We both remember the day, the day he bought it. He was, but Jimmy was very good. And Did he buy one instrument, one type of instrument more than another? Or no, he bought mostly Fenders. But anything that came out that was good, he bought Mose Rights, he bought Gibsons. Anything that was different. He bought anything that struck his fan. He could buy anything he wanted. Hmm. And he was very generous with the quiz. I have a, there's a kid that came into my store. was his fan. He gave him two guitars. We just bought him. Kid walked in. I love you, Jimmy. I love you. Gave him two guitars. What kind of guy he was. We talk about the Beatles and their impact with just about every instrument that they touched. Mm -hmm. Can you relate how sure. that impact well, let's, let's Let's discuss first... Um, the half and the bass. We wouldn't sell one. I considered them a, a very thin sounding, not well-made instrument. When McCartney started using it, I had to buy them by the dozens. Couldn't get enough of them. And the price went from, I think, from 89.50 up to 489.50. Rickenbacker, um, guy owned the company, his name was John Hall. He couldn't sell his guitars. Than that hit. Um, Gibson and Fender, they were always, that never had the problem. But those two companies really, oh, Vox, Vox. Vox was unbelievable. They came into us and we, they sold us the line. And I think that every five amplifiers we had of theirs, three of them blew up. They were, the two that were good were unbelievable. But the three, we had more problems with their stuff. And then one day, um, they said to me, come on down, um, uh, McCartney's doing a show down there. We're gonna show them something different, I want you to see it. They had the Wawa, the first Wawa pedal. That was the Vox Wawa, that was, that was something else. That really changed the whole business too. And um, he fell in love with that. So did we, we used to buy him by the time. But the Vox stuff, it was just unbelievable. The, the, the continental organ, which everybody used, was the only one on the market in those days. We had to learn to do fast repairs on them because they were just, they always fell apart. Then, of course, they finally figured out what was wrong with them and they became, now they're good. Years ago, it was just a horrible piece of equipment. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. A lot well, of even like uh, Zildjian had been around for years, years. Did did they 
They had a huge impact, right, from the uh, from the Beatles. Oh yeah. Uh, Ludwig too. Uh, Bill Ludwig gave um, Ringo a gold um, snare drum. Um, he did. Um, yeah, I guess the two brothers were Bob and Armin Zildjian, which they don't talk. But one of them, Armin, just died. Mm -hmm. But um, they really became. You're right. Zildjian's very and Ludwig. I'm sorry, I should have thought about that one too. All the drums. In fact, the matter is, when they did Shea Stadium. We got a rush phone call from um, the road manager for Ringo. He forgot his hi-hat stand. So my brother-in-law had to go running out to the stadium and deliver it. Before he got backstage, it was unbelievable. And then he left, he didn't watch the concert. Never forgave him for that. But um, they, they loved Ludwig. They did good with that in Zildjian. And they, you know, they, they played everything though. They, they weren't, um, they signed up for nobody. They didn't author, uh, authorize any kind of um, use of their names. Interesting. Yeah, but they liked them. Um, they liked musical instruments. They used to love to try anything that was different. They used to come in and just spend two, three hours in the store trying everything. Same thing with Hendrix. He used to do all of them. When they when they got to be that kind of a personality, and we had the money, all the money they wanted to spend. They would buy four of everything and just try them. And if they didn't like it, give it away. So switching gears just a little bit and on a, probably a much uh, more somber note, but interesting for me as a historian, part of the goal is not just to document the history of the music products industry and these companies and people, but also to get a sense of the time and the era in which they lived. And oftentimes that allows us to talk about some social impacts that music and non-music topics. Uh, for example, I often interviewed people who worked um, uh, during the big band era who were drafted in the World War II and those experiences often talked about music but maybe didn't. So we try to document those whenever possible. And for some reason, I just had it in my head, I mean, going to New York City and, and thinking about 9-11 uh, in 2017 when I met with Ian and Judd, I just took the time to ask them about their experiences on that day. And I'm really glad I did because it helps us document and it helps us as Americans that vow that we all took to never forget. And I just think that pausing here and um, honoring that is an important element. Yeah, I just, I don't think you can examine a New York institution, whether it's a music retailer or a financial building on Wall Street or I don't know, anything else that's synonymous with New York City and not integrate that into that event into part of the history in that story. So um, way to go, Dan. I'm being cognizant of that and capturing that. And we'll let Ian and Judd reflect on their experiences. Another thing, um, if you don't mind, uh, sort of a aside, uh, we're documenting some of the social things that have happened uh, during your, your career as well. Were you uh, working uh, on 48th Street uh, during 9-11? Yes. Uh, I was actually driving in that day. I had to close, so I come up past the uh, on the term, New Jersey Turnpike, past uh, the the uh, airport, Newark Airport, 
when I'm listening traffic because I need to figure out which tunnel I'm going to take coming in. And and uh, the the pilot says a bill uh, something just crashed into the uh, the tower, and so I could actually see it. You know, it, it, it's about by the crow, it's about two miles away. So could see it burning, and then I make the loop coming down into the tunnel, and right before I get out to that loop, the second plane hits, and I got stopped. I got stopped before going into the tunnel and turned around. That's when they, and then the Pentagon got hit, and, and uh, that's when they knew it was a terrorist attack, and they basically shut down the city. Um, I, so, yeah, I was there. I was not in the city. My brother was. He was at the store. And I said, dude, I call him up. I, you know, I got through. Cell, cell phone stuff stopped after a little bit, but they, they were. I said, dude, you got to get out of there. You know, get out of the city, otherwise you're never going to get out. And he's like, no, man, I'm unloading the UPS truck. You know, <laughs> and, and but I, I have to tell you, when I when I said before that, um, you know, retail is not easy in New York dealing with cranky people. New Yorkers changed after that visibly changed like right away i know i changed i used to you know you're in times square where we are at times square right now you walk outside right now it takes you it takes you it could take you 10 minutes to walk two blocks because of all the people and it used to really frustrate me you know five tourists walking down the sidewalk all in a row and you can't pass them and i basically walk on the street and curse them or not would curse under my breath all of that stuff stopped i stopped doing that i became uh for a good Five, six years, I was a nicer person until I reverted back <laughs> to my regular self. But New Yorkers were nicer. New Yorkers, New York definitely changed. It was really a very much a, you know, we're going to all suffer together here. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was different. It was, it was difficult. It's difficult. Now, I went to my wife's cousin's husband died and we went to because we live in the we live uh, down on Jersey coast and it's kind of a there's a high-speed ferry to Wall Street so we knew a lot of people so we went to uh, his funeral and two memorial services where you know after that and it was a really hard time in New York uh, my father was was retired it was one of the things that he should be happy that you know, because business definitely suffered. Mm. You know, there was no tourism from, from yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a tough time. I still, it's still hard. You see airplanes coming over. I still have the memory of it. I see airplanes coming by, and and, and you know, I still think about that day. So, um, but you know, you get through. It's New York. And we had a blackout a couple of years later where it was like four in the afternoon and everything, all the lights went out. It ended up being an explosion down in a, in a you know, sub center down in down, uh, downtown. Oh, actually, no, maybe it was a, something happened maybe out west. Anyway, the whole, the whole city went down and people panicked for a little bit until we figured out what it was. And then it was kind of cool. You know, that was all right. But well, we can't stay in business. Let's see if there are any bars open that that do by candlelight. You know, and then it was kind of fun. But, but, but the whole specter of it, maybe another thing happening in New York went through everybody's mind, and it never goes away. You know, it never goes away. I was at, you know, I was in the store at 9/11. We were just my brother 
as I know, was uh, in the tunnel on the way into the city. I was in the store, and you know, we it, it was blasted out everywhere, and people were panicking because you know the word was there was a plane on their way to Rockefeller Center, which was of course right around the corner. Um, we closed. We closed immediately, uh, sent everybody home. You know, the, the whole bottom line was to make sure all the employees were safe. Um, I had a brother-in-law who worked down on Wall Street. So I went down there to see how he was doing. And he, I found him, unbelievably so. And he was covered in soot. And um, it was horrible. I, we, we took him to, like they were setting up triage hospitals all around. And I took him there, and he was fine, thank God. But one of the one of the horrible things and scary things was these hospitals were empty. I mean, they expected tons of casualties, but so many people passed because of the tragedy. It was horrible. It was a horrible day. I, I, I mean, I have three kids. They were all tremendously concerned where I was. Um, you know, it, it was it was a hard day and a really hard couple of weeks, followed up by a hard couple of months to follow. It was hard to get New York back in its place, and of course, it, you know, New York is tremendously resilient, and, and it happened. But, yeah, you know, the goal, my goal, was to get everybody home, you know, and get everybody home safely. And not to belittle that at all, but it also had an almost immediate impact on business. Didn't yes, it? business, you know, business suffered tremendously from from 9/11. You know, New York, you know. You know, New York is in a tough place right now in terms of um, making music. There's so many large studios, and 9-11 was the start of it, kind of. Um, so many large studios have closed. So many venues have closed. It's, you know, it's not only things like 9-11 and safety and the, being in a large city like Manhattan, it's the pricing. You know, people are priced out. So New York has definitely changed in terms of m music making, you know. I, I do everything in my power with all of the venues. It's some part of my business, working for the Artist Relations and Guitar Center, working with the venues, making sure that we're bringing musicians into Manhattan as venues close, as studios close. So moving into our next section, we are going to hear how Manny's unfortunately uh, ended business, um, and it was purchased by Sam Ash in 1999 and kept alive for a couple more years. And it had a really good run. And we're going to hear from Henry and Ian, as well as Judd, talking about uh, closing down the store. So what made Manny's the place to be? It was well, location? Was it no, it was, it was, it was, there were a lot. Of, when we first got started in, on 40th Street in the, in the 50s, when the, when the music really started, there must have been 15, 20 stores in that street. Wine management was the most popular. Well, I guess we had the best sales force. We had the most knowledge. The name Manny's was world renowned by then from the fathers of the rock and rollers who were musicians if they were. They were big band people. They told their kids, hey, Manny's is the place to go. And they always came there. We. Uh, in fact, there was a thing in Rolling Stone magazine that they'd rather have their cover, their picture on the wall at Manny's Music Store than a cover of a magazine. And I have that copy at home. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, that was, that was pretty nice. And we got written up in every magazine. Every rock star, when they took pictures, took my Manny's. When, the, when Freddie and the Dreamers first came to New York years ago, 
they had to do their photo shoot at Manny's, in the window upstairs at Manny's. When um, I can't think of, I mean, there must have been dozens upon dozens of people, uh, Guns N' Roses, they were one of their best videos at Manny's. Hmm. They just all, it was, a, it was a nice atmosphere, and nobody got bugged. When the Beatles walked into the store, nobody went running over to them for the pictures or autographs. They knew that these, the kids that came into our store, even the amateurs, knew what they were doing and knew to have respect for the musicians. Sure, they, they eyed them and they enjoyed maybe getting hello. And that's one thing about the Beatles, they never refused a handshake or a hello. They were very nice. Yeah, so talk a little bit about um, how your career changed because uh, with Manny's being bought out, what happened there and, and where did you go? Uh, well, I've, I've basically been doing the same thing my whole life. <laughs> it didn't change very much. I, uh, we sold Manny's to Sam Ash in 1999. I, um, my brother and I were the only family members that moved with the company. Um, and we ran Manny's together because Sam Ash was trying to uh, establish that brand as well. So we ran Manny's right on 48th Street, right next to Sam Ashes, right next to four Sam Ashes that were there. And my brother and I ran that. And then Judd moved to California to open up a Manny's out there. I stayed. And I ran Manny's until we closed it in 2009. Um, I made it into one very large Sam Ash music store. Broke through walls. I mean, New York is a very different kind of place. You know, there are little alleyways through buildings. You know, multiple buildings, so there are five buildings all connected by a couple doors. So we ran this, it was a very big Sam Ash. I actually ran the Sam Ashes, I ran at all five Sam Ashes on 48th Street. And that all ended uh, 2013. Um, basically the, the block uh, got bought up by Rockefeller Group and they, and they are planning a 9.6 million square foot office tower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shame, right? But we moved to 34th Street. I'm running the 34th Street store, which is this, uh, the main store on uh, in the same ass chain. And um, so I really haven't moved. You know, I'm as stable as you can get. You know, I'm still doing the same thing. The, actually, the big difference is I'm working for a different family, not my own, which is great. <laughs> It's the best. I hear about the I hear about the Ash brothers fighting, and I just laugh at them. You know, I say, guys, I'm so happy it's you guys, not me and my brother and family. So it's really that's that's a good thing. But it takes a little bit of a difference. You know, I work for somebody as opposed to being my own boss. That took a year or two, a year to get through. Um, but uh, it's a really good company to work for, so I'm I'm happy. Now, did you help establish a new location on yes. the 34th? Yeah. What was that like for you? Uh, that was, I mean, Sammy, they, the S people got the location um, and did the build out, and I wasn't any part of that. But the whole shutting down of 48th Street and moving the stuff, so we had five, five storefronts in 10 different locations, so 10 different street addresses but five locations and moving all of that stuff to one location and then opening up in five days, which was 
unbelievably stressful, you know? And I thought we were going to have a little bit more time to do that, you know, than the five days. But, you know, you got to get the customers in. So, yeah, it was interesting. And, you know, the, it took a little bit of time to continue clearing out 48th Street. These are old buildings that were around. I mean, the Manny's building was the, the newest one, and it was built in 1969 when we moved in 2013. So that building was almost 50 years old, and the other ones were even older. So there were little cubbies, and there were condemned, condemned floors. It was really kind of crazy. It was very New York. Very New York, you know. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't run a run a business in some of these places anywhere else, but but in New York. Um, but you know, it's it, uh, it was it was fun. It was good. It was a good experience. You know, we pulled it off. We pulled Did it off. Did you discover anything cool when you were moving that? Closing it up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think we probably gone through the place a bunch of times before that. <laughs> we ended up throwing a lot of stuff out. I mean, dumpsters, just one right after the other after the other. So um, that, that was, uh, that was, you know, what's still there, what's still in, in, uh, in, in the building is this uh, six-foot, 5,000-pound safe. It's on the third floor of Manny's, and it's still there. And they, I, I don't know how we got it in there at the time. It had to be craned in, and I don't know how they're going to get it out. But uh, that's one thing I wasn't taking. <laughs> Leave, that. <laughs> Leave that. I opened it up, make sure it was empty. <laughs> but yeah, leave that. That's really interesting. Yeah, so now you're working for uh, the Sam Ash and the Ash family, and um, it seemed like you're really enjoying that. Well, you know what? I grew up with them. Uh, Jerry and Bernice and uh, Henry and Judy, my parents, were friends. They would travel together with um, Marge and uh, Chuck Levin from Washington Music. So the six of them would travel. They'd go to Frankfurt Show, and then they'd travel for two weeks together. So I knew uh, Richard and Sammy back when we were teenagers. So it was really easy for me to, you know, be part, become part of that family. We, we became very, very, they moved on to 48th Street um, in, the, in the 70s, and that's right when I kind of came into the business. And um, back then there was such a thing as an exclusive in the business, you know, where you actually established a line, and so we sold it, but so Sam Ash couldn't, you know. Um, and we fought for those. We really fought tooth and nail for those. Even though we were friend, friends, the, on, once we were on the street, you weren't. You know, um, so we became competitors. I think I kind of soured the relationship between my parents and and uh, and the Ashes because of some of this stuff. But you know what? It, it all went away over time. You know, you fight you fight for your exclusive. I remember I remember making deals. You know, we, I mean, we made a deal with Emu. Emu was going out of business right before the Proteus came out. And I was off, and my father called me and says, they want $50,000 up front, and we'll get the first how many Proteus ones. Um, and I said, Dad, it's going to be a revolutionary product, but it's, you know, they might go out of business, too. So we, we gave them the 50 grand, and that was another product where you know, every one of them that came in was back-ordered. You, know, you had a line of people waiting for them. And, 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 and we got 100 of them in, and we offloaded them off the truck, and they were packed individually. It's not like there were five in a box. They were packed individually. And my father said, leave them out in front of the store. 
you know, so Richie Ash could walk by and see 100 Proteus's live stacked up in front, you know, just to piss him off. <laughs> he was good like that. I remember, I remember we, get, we would get shipments from Calzone and we would order cases for bands and they'd have their, 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 their names stenciled on the cases. We did this for all the big bands. And I remember uh, the Clash had red cases, right, all of them, and they ordered you know, 40, 50 cases. One thing, we couldn't take them all in at the same time because they were big road cases. But Henry said, leave them out on the street, right, with all the class signs facing out. And it was, you know, it was just the sort of little stuff that he, just the marketing stuff. We never advertised. We never put an ad in a paper or anything. But he would do that kind of stuff that would, you know, if there were cell phones back then, people would have been all over it, you know. <laughs> so... Yeah, street was street was pretty dynamic. A lot of fun, a lot of good memories, and bad ones, you know. But overall, it was a good. It's a good experience. The demise of Manny's was a very big challenge. I mean, you know, it was heartfelt, um, you know, painful. But you know, at the end, as my brother and I moved on from it, it was it, it was fine. It was you know almost like a relief. You know, the company was bought by Sam Ash. Uh, they did great things for us. I went out and opened up Manny's Music in L.A. under the Ash umbrella. Um, they were they treated us fabulously. Uh, my brother continues to work for the Ash family, and I moved on to work with Guitar Center, where I've been with them for 13 years, and um, uh, ran uh, the, one of their largest stores in the chain, um, the Union Square store in Manhattan, and now. For three years, I've been their artist relations manager on the East Coast, which gives me an opportunity to really do what I, you know, my, my father did phenomenally well at Manny's, and what I've always done is be sort of a concierge for the musician. What I do is I service the musician, certainly not just with price, but with just fabulous service. And it's, tr it's in my wheelhouse, it's what I grew up on, and, and I think Guitar Center saw that and moved me into that role three years ago, and it, it's almost a blessing. So I, the, from, from the device of Manny's to the onset of where we are now, it, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. So that's uh, the gold riches reflecting on kind of the end of the era of Manny's there. We're going to wrap up, start to wrap up this podcast here by uh, hearing from Judd and Ian on pretty much the legacy of Manny's and what made it so successful, and kind of my interpretation of their, these next clips are what, elevated Manny's into this like iconic status after its closure, after the door is shut for the final time. Um, and I think Judd and Ian are the perfect people to do it and they say it in an excellent way. The start of the success of Manny's came from my grandfather Manny. You know, he was a brass salesman uh, that ended up opening a store because he had tremendous success in Harlem with all uh, the musicians down there. And he did something that was unheard of. He started giving credit giving, you know, opening house accounts to all the, the musicians, you know, it was just insane that it was just something that was unheard of. I actually have one of the original, you know, um, what do you call it, like registers, handwritten registers, where all of a sudden you see it's from 1935, they're opening up AR accounts. And I think his generosity and his trust was one of the reasons why for the flourishment. And then, of course, they moved to uh, 48th Street and lots of stores came on the street and I think that was an awesome uh, way to attract everybody because it was competitive, it was fabulous. The reason that, I, that I'm sitting here is not because I'm still in the business and I still, it's not the longevity factor. I know it's because of the Manny's part of it, you know. Um, you can talk to Sammy about the business as it is right now and he did. 
I think so. So he can give you insight into the business, into the workings of Sam Ash, into their locations and things like that. So I'm, I guess I'm here, and my brother will be here because of the Manny's part of it. And um, I think that that's, uh, that'll never go away, that Manny's. You know, I've I've made peace with my grandfather for blowing it. You know, because essentially it was 13 family members work in the store, which is really overwhelming. Um, but my brother and I are the ones who ended up s selling it. We were the, at the head when we had to sell it. So I made peace with my grandfather, but uh, it's still quite a a legacy. Um, yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you add what when I'm in this chair and I'm asking people about music store experiences. It can be professionals, you know, and that's the number one answer. Yeah. Is Manny's. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. We, we, uh, my sister put a book out, which is like a memory book. It's just a picture. It's a picture book, basically, of all the pictures on the wall. But when the store shuttered, there were multiple people who uh, put pictures of them by this piece of marble on the ground, kneeling by the piece of marble. I mean, I saw, I, I, don't, I don't even, I'm not big into following people, but somebody sent me an Altimiola one where I was there, Sarah, Sarah Jessica Parker was when So all these people are going there, paying homage to the place that used to be there, you know? So yeah, that's, that's got nothing to do with me. That's all my grandfather and father. Yeah, I, I just got a job. <laughs> Another cool thing about Manny's is there are so many folks that started there and then went on either to rep uh, sure. or to work in manufacturing. And yes, yes. Yeah. As a result, you probably have friends all over the industry. There are a lot of people, yeah, there are a lot of people that, uh, that, um, that moved on. Yeah, we, had, we, back in the day, we hired a lot of good people and we paid people well. So, you know, and then, and then they would get poached, you know, because, you know, working retail is not easy. You know, you're on your feet a good part of the day and you're dealing with the public and the New York public can be a little bit crankier than others. And uh, and so, you know, if you if you got a job as a manufacturer's rep or going to a manufacturer, you took it. So, yeah, a lot of people moved on from there. It was good. It's a good thing. So before we say goodbye, we have one more voice to introduce because we can't leave this podcast about Manny's music without hearing from this staple <laughs> of Manny's history. Right. We were so grateful um, to all those involved with helping us arrange an interview with Murray Sunshine. Yes, that's his real name. And he was Sunshine. We interviewed him in 2008 and uh, to great delight. He had story after story after story. And uh, what was really cool is the, uh, the beginning of his career all started because Manny himself hired Murray to work in his store. He then had a long 60-year-plus career in music retailing in New York, thanks to that start, and uh, just an iconic guy in our, in our world. Uh, Murray was born in 1924 and passed away uh, just this year, 2018, and we miss him already. He's a, a certainly uh, missed. He contributed a lot to a lot of people's knowledge of the industry and always took the time to help young people out who had questions. Uh, I hear about him being a mentor to many people. So um, Elizabeth had the uh, great idea of uh, playing a clip from his interview. So I'd love to have you introduce it. 
Yeah, I mean, while this podcast has been predominantly all the Goldrich family, um, we thought who better to include than Murray? And he kind of sums up uh, the thoughts on the importance of music extremely well with a little bit of humor interjected <laughs> in there too. Uh, so I hope you guys like it and I hope it uh, resonates with you and you kind of keep his thoughts in your mind when you're thinking about music and encouraging others to pick up and play. So we'll leave you with Murray and we'll see you guys in two weeks. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, I used to have a, a debate with somebody that was on the Board of Education uh, who happened to be a relative of mine, but that's not, he was on the Board of Education, one of the schools in you know, Long Island, and I used to sit with him, and he used to say how stupid it was to uh, have these kids scratching on violins and how terrible they sound and all this kind of stuff. I said, well, that's the learning process, you know. He says, well, I used to go to the gym, and, uh, and I wrestle with my kids, and we have fun doing that. Uh, this, this, don't make, this whole thing didn't make sense to him. I said, well, it's a to play a musical instrument you have your whole life. I said, when you wrestle, you can't do that your whole life. So the music will stay with you. Well, anyhow, years go by. And of course, Mel, Mel is now lame like we all get, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And you can't do what you did before. And I saw him, I said, how you doing, Mel? He said, uh, oh, I can't walk, arthritis, but you know, all this stuff. I said, well, I said, are you still wrestling with your kids? He said, no, he said, they're all full grown, and I couldn't do that anyhow. I can't even do it with my grandchildren. I said, you know, that's really too bad. I said, you know, I still play. And I'm playing with my grandchildren, and I play with my children, and we play. We get together and we play music. He said, I still can do that. I said, you don't want to listen then. You would have had something today if you would have done a little practicing and playing an instrument. I don't know if he understood what I was saying. He's probably so lame dead, brain dead already, you know. But I mean it. That, that, that I've never met anybody that has said to me, that hasn't said to me, I wish I could have played. I started to play and I gave up. And how how nice it would be if I could play an instrument today. And I said, I believe everybody should play a kazoo. They should play something. I don't care what it is, but music is the most important. It's soul fulfilling, you know. And that's, that's what I wanted to say. Okay, cut it. <laughs> <laughs>